Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good afternoon. My name is Jimmy and I will be your conference operator today. I would like to welcome everyone to the Aptos Biosciences conference call for the first quarter and in March 31st, 2020. At this time, all participants are in listen-only mode. After the speaker's remarks, there will be a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question during this time, simply press star followed by the number one on your telephone keypad. If you would like to withdraw your question, please press the pound key. Thank you. As a reminder, this conference call may be recorded. I would like to introduce Ms. Susan Pietropaolo. Please go ahead. Thank you, Jimmy. Good afternoon and welcome to the Aptos Biosciences Conference call to discuss financial and operational results for the first quarter ended March 31st, 2020. I am Susan Pietropalo, Communications Representative for Aptos Biosciences. Joining me on the call today are Dr. William G. Rice, Chairman, President, and CEO, Mr. Gregory Chow, Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer, Dr. Yodi Morongo, Senior Vice President and Chief Business Officer, and Dr. Rafael Bayard, Senior Vice President, Chief Medical Officer. Before we proceed, I would like to remind everyone that certain statements made during this call will include forward-looking statements within the meaning of U.S. and Canadian securities laws. Forward-looking statements reflect Aptos's current expectations regarding future events, but are not guarantees of performance, and it is possible that actual results and performance could differ materially from these stated expectations. They involve known and unknown risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that may cause actual results, performance, and achievement to differ materially from those expressed. To learn more about these risks and uncertainties, please read the risk factors set forth in Aptos's most recent annual report on Form 10-K and SEC and CEDAR filings. All forward-looking statements made during this call speak only as of the date they are made. Aptos undertakes no obligation to revise or update the statements to reflect events or circumstances after the date of this call, except as required by law. I will now turn the call over to Dr. Rice, Chairman, President, and CEO of Aptos Biosciences. Dr. Rice? Thank you, Susan. I'd like to welcome everyone to our call for the first quarter ended March 31st, 2020. Although our prior conference call was not even two months ago, much has changed in our world since then. Before I update you on Aptos and what potential impact on COVID-19 could have on our business, if any, I'd like to express our heartfelt thanks to all healthcare workers, our compassion to those who are infected, and our hope that all of you are safe and healthy. We are fortunate that Aptos is not experiencing the full force of headwind that many other biotech companies are facing. Where several have halted or postponed clinical trials and others have experienced significant enrollment issues, the situation is unique to each company and to each molecule or treatment. Aptos, as you know, is developing CG806 and Apto253 to address unmet needs in hematologic cancers. Because patients with hematologic cancers tend to be quite ill, treatment of these patients is not elective. Consequently, our phase one clinical trials are con continuing to enroll despite recent events. An important consideration for clinical investigators and prospective patients is that to date, neither CG806 nor APTO253 has been myelosuppressive, and importantly during this pandemic, neither has induced immunosuppression. Many cancer therapies, both approved and under development, can cause immunosuppression, 
potentially elevating risk for patients in general, but even more so during this healthcare crisis. Now let's first con consider the potential impact of COVID-19 on CG806, or just 806 as I will call it. We have addressed and continue to address challenges that could cause disruption. We will call these crosswinds, if you will, but thus far we have experienced no material delays in our ongoing B-cell malignancy trial. Our team proactively addressed these new challenges swiftly and appropriately, implementing safeguards and procedures to ensure the safety of our patients, clinicians, and employees as the top priority and accommodate the potential challenges due to COVID-19. With 806, we are experiencing more crosswinds rather than headwinds, and that relates to the properties of 806. For example, 806 is orally administered, and we can ship bottles of capsules directly to the patients, thereby reducing the need for, pay for visits to clinical sites. We also had enabled remote monitoring, which again reduces patients' visits. Patients each receive an iPad, which allows them to upload data and observations in real time and also reduces the potential risk of exposure to COVID-19. This greatly reduces hospital or clinical site resources and the sites are appreciative. We also can reduce the number of site visits by not requiring all of the typical once a week blood draws and by relying on local labs for additional safety monitoring. We are also in constant contact with our drug manufacturers to assess and proactively avoid potential supply chain disruptions. Thus far, we have not experienced any such disruptions and our manufacturing of drug substance and drug product have actually accelerated. One key adaptation is the fact that we now are placing greater focus on enrolling patients from specialty regional cancer centers, rather than focusing on the large hospitals and academic institutions. This is because many of the large academic sites have emergency rooms and infectious disease units treating COVID-19 patients and face challenges to safely enroll patients in clinical trials. In contrast, most of the regional sites are not treated COVID-19 patients. They have both the bandwidth to enroll and a lower risk of infection to cancer patients coming into their clinics. Such an adaptation represents a rapid pivot that has served us well, and based on our anticipated enrollment rate, we continue on track. Regarding an update on 806 development, this is a distinct clinical asset compared to most other therapies that are commercialized or under development. Many of you have heard this before, but for those of you who haven't, 806 is much more than a typical FLT3 or BTK inhibitor, as it, has, as it not only inhibits wild type and mutant forms of BTK and FLT3, it potently and simultaneously suppresses multiple oncogenic signaling pathways upon which cancer cells rely for survival and drug resistance. This singular compound targets the primary drivers of B-cell malignancies and acute myeloid leukemia, or AML, including BTK and FLT3, yet with a precision that avoids known targets that are often associated with toxicities. It is this unparalleled kinase selectivity profile that sets 806 apart from other hematology drugs on the market or in development and what is contributing to much of the excitement surrounding the compound. Now let's focus on our phase one study of 806 the treatment of patients with B-cell cancers, including CLL and non-Hodgkin's lymphomas, or just NHL. And today I'll speak about dose levels one through four that involve the administration of 150, 300, 450, and 600 milligrams BID, respectively. Since our last call, 
we successfully completed the third dose level with 450 milligrams. And on March 27th, our Cohort Safety Review Committee unanimously supported escalation to the fourth dose level with 600 milligrams. Also, we are pleased that the first patient dosed on this trial, who began at a dose level one, receiving 150 milligrams, has completed 10 cycles at that dose level, and now has been dose escalated to dose level three and receiving 450 milligrams per our protocol, and that patient is performing well. Following completion of dose level three, we quickly commence patient treatment on dose level four with 600 milligrams. To date, even at these higher doses, 806 continues to be well tolerated. Now let's discuss a few details of the patients already enrolled in the study cohorts to date. The very first patient, as I said, is on a study at 150 milligrams. This patient has CLL with an SLL phenotype. At that dose level, we achieved a steady state exposure level in the plasma of approximately 0.1 micromolar. This steady state represents the minimum level observed in the plasma over time. Importantly, we collected plasma from that patient and tested it in a plasma inhibitory activity, or PIA assay. With this PIA assay, we first collect the plasma from the patient, return it to our labs, and place it on reporter cells. After a few hours, we use Western blotting to determine if there is sufficient drug in the plasma to inhibit the phosphorylation of key biomarkers, including BTK, ERK, PDGFR-alpha, and SYK, and that is spelled S-Y-K. We observed that once the patient achieved steady-state plasma levels of 806, the plasma inhibited all of these pharmacodynamic markers in the PIA assay, and that's with dose level one. At the second dose level, we placed one CLL patient on study. With that CLL patient, we observed a rapid and dramatic lymphocytosis, indicated that a pharmacologically active exposure of 806 had been achieved, as the cellular effect is classically ascribed as a response to the inhibition of BTK. Concurrently, we observed 100% inhibition of phosphorylation of BTK in the PBMCs from the patient's bloodstream. Moreover, steady-state levels of 806 approached the one micromolar range, and the PIA assay revealed that levels of 806 in the plasma were capable of fully inhibiting the phosphorylation of BTK, SIC, ERK, and PDGFR-alpha in the reporter cells. After evaluating the data from dose level 2 with 300 milligrams, we moved to dose level 3 with 450 milligrams at which we enrolled and completed the 28-day cycle with two follicular lymphoma patients and one SLL patient. As a result, we completed that dose level and collected the necessary data quickly and safely. Although we will not discuss the data quantitatively, as those data are now embargoed for, for presentation at the EHA conference in June, we can say that the drug was well tolerated, the steady-state PK levels were well-behaved and in the circa one micromolar range, and that the levels of 806 in the plasma inhibited the expected PD markers in the PIA assays. After successful completion of the 28-day cycle with those three patients at the third dose level with 450 milligrams, we then escalated to dose level four, on which the patients would receive 600 milligrams. At this time, we continue to dose in this cohort, and 806 continues to be well-tolerated. While we are quite pleased with the findings thus far at dose levels three and four, 
We once again will remind you that we are unable to share embargoed findings from these dose levels until the EHA conference. Provided we successfully complete 28 dosing of three patients at that 600 milligram dose level, we plan to dose escalate with three patients at 750 milligrams and then 900 milligrams to ultimately determine the recommended phase two dose for patients with B-cell malignancies. Depending on the clinical activity and specific subgroups in this dose escalation phase, we may enroll up to 100 patients across four expansion studies. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Raphael Behar, recently presented a summary of data from patients on the first two dose levels during the AACR virtual forum. Note that the press release and corresponding slides are available on our website. The conference format was amended from live to virtual, and we were unable to deliver the, the, the live oral presentation that we originally had been granted. So we utilized the five-minute virtual opportunity to summarize data from the first two cohorts for medical professionals and to indicate that we continue to dose escalate successfully. As I noted earlier, we look forward to presenting a more complete picture of the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic profile of the higher dose levels at the European Hematology Association, also known as EHOP, meeting in June, which will also be a virtual meeting and at ASH later in the year. As of today, we have 21 U.S. sites open for screening and enrolling patients for the study, with additional sites scheduled to come on board. For more specific information on the B-cell malignancy trial and the clinical sites enrolling patients, please visit clinicaltrials.gov. Now let's move on to the application of 806 to patients with AML. We've spoken before about our rationale for the AML study and the KOL support behind it, so I'll update you briefly on the status of this planned study. 806 is the only BTK inhibitor that also possesses strong FLT3 inhibitory activity, giving it broad therapeutic potential across the hematology spectrum, including both lymphoid and myeloid malignancies. Based on our extensive preclinical work, it has always been our intent to treat AML patients with 806 in addition to the B-cell malignancies. As you may recall, back in 2017, we had applied for and were granted orphan drug designation for 806 by the FDA for the treatment of patients with AML. At first glance, AML appears to be a competitive market with recently approved drugs and others on the horizon. However, none of these approved agents offers cures in and among themselves. While current targeted therapies may initially show some clinical benefit, Eventually, most responders relapse and become refractory to such treatments. We, along with a growing number of investigators and industry experts, continue to believe that 806 is clearly distinct from other agents on the market and in development, and that it has the potential to serve as a transformational agent for multiple hematologic cancers, including AML, CLL, and others. So far, the big question has been, what dose level will we recommend for the starting dose with AML patients? To answer this, we must consider the data in their totality that we have gleaned from our clinical study in patients with B-cell malignancies. We must choose a dose that, first, is safe and well-tolerated in humans, that has achieved plasma exposure levels that we believe can inhibit phospho-FLT3 and other key kinases operative in AML, that can kill AML cells, and that correlates with potent efficacy in animal models of AML. As I mentioned earlier, all dose levels thus far up to 600 milligrams have been safe and well tolerated. 
so that takes care of the safety consideration. Also, already we have observed what I will call circa one micromolar steady state plasma levels at the 300 and 450 milligram dose levels. That plasma exposure level inhibits phospho-FLT3 and other relevant targets in the PIA assay, and that plasma exposure level is in the same steady state, steady state exposure range that led to AML cures in mice and without observed toxicities. Overall, based on safety, pharmacokinetic, and pharmacodynamic data from patients in the ongoing phase 1AB study in patients with B-cell malignancies, we now have identified what we believe can serve as a therapeutic starting dose for the treatment of AML patients. We're in the final stages of preparing the new IND for submission to the FDA to seek allowance to initiate the clinical study of 806 and relapsed and refractory AML patients. I want to point out that this is not the same as submitting an IND for a new agent that has never been in humans. This new IND for 806 will consolidate all preclinical data as well as the safety, tolerability, PK, PD, and pharmacologic activity findings gathered to date in patients with B-cell malignancies. Thus, this requires more time to prepare than the first inhuman IND, but we are heart heartened by the data and we look forward to submission of the findings to the FDA and we hope to move into AML patients as soon as possible. Finally, our clinical team has identified and is working closely with top-tier institutional sites and regional cancer treatment sites to initiate the new AML trial. All of the features that I mentioned about 806 before, that it is oral, that it is well-tolerated, and that we can remotely monitor patients, make us optimistic that the FDA will allow our IND so that we may begin dosing AML patients at what we believe may be a therapeutic dose. To wrap up on 806, with some additional precautionary measures because of COVID-19 arena, we have already made significant progress in 2020. We look forward to reporting on our progress on the ongoing Phase 1AB study in CLL and B-cell malignancies, as well as the prospective AML trial throughout the remainder of this year. And now on to APTO 253, or just 253, our second clinical candidate and a first-in-class MIC inhibitor currently in a Phase 1AB trial for patients with AML and MDS. As many of you know, the MIC oncogene is a major driver of cancer cell proliferation. In fact, its expression is estimated to be elevated in up to 70% of human cancers, including AML and MDS, as well as solid tumors. Per our Phase 1 clinical protocol, 253 is being administered once weekly over a 28-day cycle at ascending doses in patients with relapsed or refractory AML or high-risk MDS until a maximum tolerated dose is reached. The study is designed to then transition as appropriate to single-agent expansion cohorts in AML and MDS. We have completed the 28-day dosing in the first three cohorts, the last being three patients on a 66 mg per meter squared dose, as well as one patient thus far in the fourth dosing cohort of 100 mg per meter squared. 253 continues to be well-tolerated with no myelosuppression, and we continue to observe MIC inhibition at all dose levels to date. In this Phase 1AB trial, we continue to learn a great deal about the molecule. We're encouraged that we continue to observe MIC inhibition, a historically difficult target to modify clinically. The trial continues to be open for enrollment, and we continue to learn what to expect clinically about 253 and are making decisions on how best to move forward with the molecule. We may consider dosing more than once a week. 
we are also pursuing preclinical studies in other cancer indications, including solid tumors. In addition, we are working on an oral formulation of the drug. Because 253 is administered to patients intravenously, which requires the need for hospital or clinical site resources to assist and monitor patients during each infusion, the COVID-19 environment may have an impact on future enrollment of patients. Because of the activity and safety we've noted thus far with 253, it remains a viable candidate in our pipeline, and we look forward to keeping you apprised of its progress. I will now call, return the call over to our Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer, Mr. Greg Chow, who will review the results of the quarter. Greg? Thank you, Bill, and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, we ended the quarter with approximately $90 million in cash and cash equivalents and investments compared to $97 million at December 31, 2019. During the quarter, we utilized approximately $8.1 million of cash in operating activities compared with $4.9 million for the same quarter last year. The increase is attributable to increased activities surrounding 253 and 806 and general and administrative purposes. Moving on to the income statement, we had no revenues for the quarter. Research and development expenses were $5.9 million for the quarter compared to 3.3 for the same quarter last year. Uh, this increase was primarily, again, due to CGA06 uh, activities, particularly the clinical trial, which did not begin until Q2 of last year. GNA expenses for the quarter were $5.9 million compared to $2.3 million for the same quarter. This variance is primarily due to an increase in stock-based compensation. Finally, our net loss for the quarter was $11.5 million, or 15 cents per share. Before I turn the call back to Dr. Rice, I want to mention that we entered into a, a new at-the-market or ATM agreement for $75 million with Piper Sandler and Canaccord Genuity as co-agents. This ATM replaces the previous one we had with them last year, which we terminated in conjunction with the $74 million public offering in December. Although we have sufficient cash to fund our plan operations and R&D into 2022, and we don't plan to utilize the ATM anytime in the near future. Having an ATM does provide a strategic and maximum flexibility in extending that runway. I will now turn the call over back to Dr. Rice. Bill. Thank you, Greg. I'll remind everyone on the line that we also have with us Dr. Yodi Morongo, our Chief Business Officer, and Dr. Rafael Behar, our Chief Medical Officer. As we open the call for questions, feel free to post questions to any of us. Operator, if you could please introduce the first question. Thank you. The first question comes from Tyler Van Buren with Piper Sandler. Your line is now open. Hey guys, good afternoon and congrats on all the progress in such a short period of time. I, I guess the, the first question is, uh, of course, on 806 and B-cell malignancies. With respect to dose level three, can you just clarify that you stated that it was uh, one uh, microliter uh, plasma exposure levels, and um, specifically how consistent was that among the three patients? And then in dose level four, is there anything you could say with respect to initial uh, plasma exposure levels? All right. Hi, Tyler. Thanks for coming on. Um, with regard to dose level three, it was uh, we had achieved the, I'll call it the circa, one micromolar, micromolar uh, plasma exposure levels. Uh, some, uh, you know, you have a little bit of chatter uh, around the, uh, the patients over time. Some were a little bit below one micromolar, some were a little bit above. Uh, but yes, uh, we're, we, uh, it was the, the pharmacokinetics were very well behaved. They were all in that one micromolar range, and we were thrilled uh, to see that. And it was very consistent uh, among the three patients. 
In terms of dose level four, uh, again, we have to be careful what we say. Uh, in terms of the patients that are on there, as I mentioned, uh, they, it's been very well tolerated. We're very happy with what we're seeing in the patients that are on the study. Uh, but the, uh, uh, the, any pharmacodynamic and pharmacologic uh, parameters at this point, uh, we'll have to wait for EHA. And perhaps Understood. Uh, Dr. Behar, Dr. Behar might, may want to add a bit to that. Uh, no, I think you did a great job characterizing the, the behavior of those patients in dose level three. I have nothing to add there. Thank you. And I guess since you can't state the levels, I guess could you just say, you know, if you expect the increase in the plasma exposure to be linear throughout the dose cohorts or, or potentially, you know, be more exponential as we get into higher doses? I, I really can't say at this point. Uh, we do not have the, the PK or BD uh, steady state levels from dose level four at this time, uh, so it's very difficult to make any judgment on that. Uh, dose level one and dose level two were only one patient, and so the one where we have the greatest confidence is dose level three, where we have three patients and they were all within the expected range. Uh, so we'll be able to provide a bit more data on that if we get into EHOF. Uh, but again, we just don't have the uh, the PKPD data yet from dose level four. Understood. And on AML, you identified initial dose, but uh, you know didn't state which dose it would be, whether it was you know dose level three or four, uh, or even potentially two, as you referred to with the 300 and 450 milligrams. Uh, so I guess is it possible that maybe you drop down and use dose level two as a starting dose and when could we learn of what the starting dose is that you guys use in AML? Would we have to wait for IMD approval? Uh, what I will say is we are recommending a dose that is derived from a cohort that has been completed. We are still in dosing a cohort four, so that narrows it down to the other cohorts. Uh, what I also would say is based on the exposure levels and the pharmacodynamic and ph pharmacologic activity that we, see, we saw in those two dose levels, either dose level two or dose level three could represent starting doses. I would feel comfortable with either of those. And uh, so we are making the recommendation up to the FDA based on all the, uh, the totality of the data. And uh, that's all being written up and we're trying to get it in within a matter of weeks uh, and submitted to the FDA. Okay, very helpful. Thanks for taking the questions. Thank you. Thank you, and our next question comes from John Newman with Cam Accord. Your line is now open. Hey guys, thanks for taking the question and uh, congrats on all the progress. Um, so Bill, I just wondered if you could give us a sense as to um, type of data and the, um, the cohorts that we might see at EHA. I, don't, I know that you obviously can't talk too much about it, but just generally speaking, I wondered if you could just maybe describe um, a bit more as to um, just the type of, of information we might see there. All right, John, thanks for coming on. Um, so we've been very consistent about this, and we want to make sure everyone understands our guidance. Uh, our guidance is that we plan to present safety, PK, and PD data, pharmacodynamic data, from cohorts one through cohorts four at EHA. Uh, 
I believe the, uh, the required submission date for abstracts to, to be uploaded is the 27th of the month of May. Uh, so we're trying to collect as much data as we can at this time, especially as far as we can through COVID-4, get those data cleaned, uh, evaluate them, and then get them integrated into, a, uh, into the posters. If additional data come uh, through uh, after that uh, May 27th date, between that and the time that we presented EHOS, then we would likely have to include that uh, such data there in a, uh, in a press release. But those are the types of data we're telling people don't expect to see response data. We're just now getting into the higher dose levels. We're getting into the right patient uh, types that we want to see and possibly get responses. But it does take time. We're seeing everything that we're hoping to see at this point, but it can take a couple of months before you start seeing responses in these chronic uh, um, B-cell malignancy patients once you achieve these higher levels. Perhaps Greg Great. and Yodi might want to add to Okay, oh, go ahead. John. Oh, sorry. Uh, and just one additional question, which is, could you just um, remind us um, <clears throat> the way that the uh, CG806 study was designed, could you just remind us of the time that the patients uh, were on a specific dose before the next cohort enrolled? Um, what I'm trying to get at here is um, just that, um, the amount of follow-up time between the dose escalation, I think, is relatively short, and I just wonder if you could um, uh, explain that to people. Thank you. Yeah, so for instance, uh, cohort three, uh, we had to place three patients on that study. Uh, all of them had to complete the safely and successfully complete a full cycle, which is 28 days. Now, if you could enroll all three patients on day one, then it would only be effectively a month of dosing and then it takes weeks to collect all the data from the clinical sites, monitor the data, ensure the data are accurate, that's PK, PD, safety data, uh, present those data then to the, the CSRC, that's the Clinical Safety Review Committee. It can be several weeks after you complete the dosing of the 20-day cycle, then you have the data presented to the CSRC, then they have to vote, move up to the next dose level. So that gives you a, a sense, and if you could get all three patients on at day one, that clearly would uh, accelerate the timelines, but that's just not the way it happened uh, in these uh, those escalation trials. You may get one immediately. It may be a week or two before the next one, the week or two before the next one. We actually look at many patients, but uh, they have to uh, fit the, in, in, uh, the entry criteria and not be excluded uh, because of the other data. There are often patients that we see that we'd like to bring on, but they have to be excluded because of their disease status. Uh, so that just gives you a sense of what it takes. And uh, the other thing I'm sure you're trying to get is how many scans will we have on some of these patients and, uh, and try to provide a little bit more guidance on that as we get closer toward EHA. Um, some of these patients that have been on for a long time, patient one, as I said, completed 10 cohorts, I mean, excuse me, 10 cycles at the first dose level. They've now moved up to dose level three. And it's gonna be squeaking to try to get a scan in there. We will try, uh, but there's no guarantee we can get a scan in considering the COVID environment before EHA, we will try. Uh, the same is true from uh, dose level three and dose level four. Hopefully we can squeak a couple in before that. Um, but there's no guarantee considering the COVID environment that we'll actually be able to get all those scans. I can vow to you we will do everything possible to do so. 
and to, uh, to then be able to represent those data at EHAW. Let me see if any of the other right, teammate, teammates want to add anything to that. Greg, Yodi, Rafa? No, it's good. I guess not. All right. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you. And our next question comes from Gregory Brenzler with RBC Capital Markets. Your line is now open. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my question, and congratulations on the progress. And um, glad to, to hear that all is well with you, you and the team um, in this environment. Um, yeah, Bill and team, just to connect you to, to, the, to the environment, and I appreciate the color on teeing up expectations coming into um, to EHA and into June. I'm just curious if you would have the um, ability to um, at least touch on or, or anticipate some of those expectations as the 806 trial progresses for the back half of the year and, and as you um, talk about getting to those levels where um, we would um, perhaps see, see responses and, and looking at what has been a, a disciplined uh, disclosure plan and how, how you think about uh, this environment affecting or maybe even reiterating given what you, the color you provided on on um, how you're sort of cross-winding and weathering the, the impact here about um, how disclosures could look at the back half of the year with respect to the trial. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Greg. Will do. Um, yeah, first of all, it reminds me, uh, so I can, can see all you guys sitting in New York City. We're all thinking about you. I hope everybody is safe there. Um, regarding the expectations, as I just described for EHAW, we've been consistent all along with what we expect to be able to present at EHAW, and that's in June. It's coming up very soon. But as we get into the second half of the year, uh, we expect to be able to present uh, additional data, especially at ASH at the end of the year. Uh, we hope by then that we will have had the correct types of patients on the higher doses, doses long enough to see responses. Um, again, we're, we're seeing everything that we hope for uh, at this point, uh, except that we need to have the patients on longer to start seeing those responses. And again, we hope to be able to present true responses um, at the ASH later this year. And you've seen this with other covalent, non-covalent BTK inhibitors. It just takes time, especially for these deeply relapsed refractory patients, it takes time for them to, uh, to show responses. Even if you were to get uh, lymphocytosis earlier on, it still takes time for uh, the scans to show. And you only scan the patients every two cycles. So that's two months apart. And only then are you able to tell whether or not they truly have a, uh, a response. Uh, so that uh, speaks to the B-cell malignancy trial for the AML. As I mentioned, we want to get that trial up and running as soon as possible. Uh, we've been able to collect all the data that we need from the, uh, the ongoing B-cell malignancy trial. All of those data are being now cleaned and put into, into the, uh, the new IND for the AML study, the prospective AML study. Uh, we want to get that, get it submitted to the FDA as soon as we can. Uh, again, we have the 30-day turnaround uh, because we have orphan drug designation. We hope that in today's environment that the, the FDA will be able to turn it around in 30 days. I commend the FDA. They have a lot on their plate, but they've actually done a tremendous job. Uh, we've been in contact with them on other activities, um, you know, progress reports, uh, annual reports, and so we've been uh, a protocol amendments, so we've been very pleased with the turnaround time, but there's just no guarantee going forward. Uh, we will get that study up and running as soon as possible. And you have to remember the AML patients, that's, that's an acute disease. Uh, if you have truly a, a therapeutic dose that hits split three, we would expect to start seeing some effects within the first month of dosing. And hopefully by the second uh, month, you start to see 
some what you can consider to be responses uh, in the bone marrow as well as the peripheral blood. Uh, so that speaks to the second half of the year, what we'd be able to hope to be able to present uh, in multiple patients with AML uh, toward the end of the year at ASH. Uh, keep your fingers crossed that we'll be able to get everything through the FDA. Uh, we're working with a variety of clinical sites, major institutions, as well as we said the regional sites. We want to get those patients on. And again, as soon as we start dosing, we believe it will be a therapeutically active dose, and there should be three patients at that dose level. One other thing that I would add, I forgot to mention earlier, uh, we do now have a protocol amendment for our B-cell malignancy trial that will allow us to uh, uh, backfill patients into earlier dose levels if we choose to do so. Uh, a good case where you might want to do that is when you've completed one dose level to three patients, you're waiting to collect the data and, and get the uh, CSRC to, to move up to the next dose level. So before you can move patients up to that next dose level, we might consider backfilling some on the, uh, the prior levels. And also, we'll try to keep moving patients up to the, uh, the highest dose level we can. So for instance, we moved up the patient one up to dose level three. When we complete dose level four, assuming we complete it and it's safe, we'd want to move up all patients on dose level one and dose level three to dose level four. So those are the types of activities throughout the rest of the year. And th thanks for being there for us, Greg. Appreciate it, all of you. Thanks, Bill. And one more question, um, if I may, um, just as far as um, COVID-19 potential impacts, and I'm just curious if you could remind us, you had mentioned in, in the past um, a healthy volunteer trial maybe to characterize right. um, PKPD more fully. I'm just curious if, if there's um, how that fits in, um, if there's any um, impacts we should be thinking there, and um, what you glean from that and how important that is as, as an input to the overall program. Thank you very much. That's actually an interesting question. So. We describe this, these as crosswinds rather than headwinds. I think it was Greg Chow that came up with the analogy. And with the, the COVID-19 out there, what it means is there's so many additional challenges we have to address, so we're still able to fly the plane. It may be just been in a little few different uh, uh, changes in direction to get where we need to go, but we're still maintaining on our original timeline and plan. Um, and as opposed to a headwind, that really pushes you and holds you back. Um, so at this point, we don't see the, uh, the COVID-19 necessarily, uh, at, least, at least at this point, dramatically influencing any of our timelines. We're still on plan. Uh, in terms of the healthy volunteer study, we were originally considering uh, doing that study so that we could get uh, additional PK data. But uh, as we were putting that together, we realized we were getting plenty of the PK data, both from the uh, B-cell malignancy trial as well as the upcoming AML trial, we should be able to get all the PK, PD data that we need. And so there is not the uh, need to perform an additional uh, healthy volunteer trial. It doesn't really add anything additionally to us at this time. We believe we can get all the data that we need from the current trials. Does that answer your questions adequately? It sure does. Super helpful. Thanks, Bill, and congrats again on the progress. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. And our next question comes from Matt Beagler with Oppenheimer. Your line is now open. Hey, guys. Thanks for taking my questions. Um, my congrats as well on the progress. Bill, um, for the EHOP data set, what are some of the other important biomarkers in addition to phospho-BTK and uh, evidence of lymphocytosis that you think we should be paying attention to? Um, well, the lymphocytosis is 
you would only expect to see that in some CLL patients. So, for instance, if you have a CLL patient that comes in with a reasonable um, load of malignant cells in the, the bloodstream, then when you start treating with an active BTK inhibitor, you could expect to see lymphocytosis. So that is something that we definitely are watching for. You should watch for that around the EHA timeframe. Um, as for the responses, again, to get a response, you have to look at the scan, and the timing of that is, is very close. We're going to do all we can. We hope to be able to see responses. But again, don't expect that at EHA. Uh, what else we'd look for is in, uh, well, but let me back up. So we talked about lymphocytosis. You don't expect that to see those in the other types of patients. Uh, so follicular lymphoma patients, DLBCL patients, maybe even Richter's. So you don't necessarily expect to see lymphocytosis in those or even the SLL patients because of the low uh, load in the peripheral blood. Uh, but we would hope to see it from the CLL patients. That's why it was important for us to get a CLL patient on very early. That was dose level two. And then also uh, in, in these uh, current dose levels and going forward, it's important for us to get those types of patients going forward so that we can show you these types of activity. We also want to be able, in particular, to get, collect PBMCs, again, from CLL patients. Why? Because if you're trying to collect nor, uh, PBMCs from patients that have follicular lymphoma and some of these other lymphomas, you don't necessarily get a picture of what's going on in the malignant cells. But if you have CLL patients that have a reasonable load of CLL cells and you dose the patients, you very often can pick up enough of the signal you can see inhibition of phospho-BTK uh, using an ELISA assay. And that is in the PBMCs, and we actually showed that in dose level four, demonstrating it's pharmacologically active. We also have been able to demonstrate that we inhibit these other, uh, we talk about our drug inhibiting multiple key kinases and in these key oncogenic pathways. So of course we talk about SICK, SYK, and BTK, and down then downstream of BTK, you want to look at ERK. We've been able to show we inhibit those fully in the dose levels so far. Uh, PDGFR alpha is another one that we want to see. It's a cell surface receptor, and we want to make sure that we uh, see that we're turning it off, as well as some of the intracellular kinases in that PI assay. And we've been able to, to show that, as I mentioned, in dose levels one, two, and three. Um, one of the other things that you should look for, but we haven't spoken about it yet that much, is phospho-FLT3. In order for us to move into AML, we have to confidently say that we believe in this PIAC that we can inhibit phospho-FLT3. So that gives you a sense we've seen that. And I'll just say we've seen inhibition of phospho-FLT3 in our PIAC. That gives us confidence that we can inhibit not only is it phospho-FLT3, it's also wild-type phospho-FLT3 that we're able to turn off, and that's even more difficult than the uh, FLT3 ITD. So that gives you a sense of what we're having to look for, not only the safety, uh, the PK levels, uh, but the PK levels will show those data. And what we know is that the levels we are already achieving is above the levels that were required to get complete cures in animal models of AML. So all of this in its totality gives us the confidence to move forward, and that's the types of data we'll be able to present. And thanks Great. for that's coming on. So you, you two are in New York, and hope you two are safe. Thanks for joining. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for taking my questions. Thank you. Our next question comes from Jason McCarthy with Maxim Group. Your line is now open. 
Hi, um, this is actually Noreen. I'm for Jason. Thanks for taking my questions. Um, so I guess I have a sort of a devil's advocate type of question regarding your PIA assay um, in the CG806 study in CLL. Is there any concern that the degree of um, BTA inhibition that you're seeing, that it shows 100% inhibition, say, um, isn't act exactly indicative of clinical activity in the body, that it may not capture levels of BTK inhibition throughout the body? Um, I guess I'm actually asking because if you look at one competing BTK drug that's a bit more advanced, which showed complete inhibition at early doses, and yet up to now they haven't quite, it hasn't quite translated into clinical activity. So um, I, I guess my question conversely is how confident are you in the clinical applicability of this assay? Oh, great question because you are preaching to the choir. I have uh, I've addressed this on many occasions. Um, inhibition of phospho BTK indicates that you are hitting, your drug is pharmacologically active, and you are hitting a, uh, a key component. Um, but inhibition of BTK does not kill the CLL cells. It just changes the, uh, the homing device. So BTK is responsible for, for maintaining those cells in the lymphoid tissues, the, the lymph nodes, the spleen, uh, and it keeps them there. When you inhibit BTK, that changes the homing uh, so that the cells now leave those lymphoid tissues, going under the peripheral blood, where they have a tendency to die. And if you maintain that activity over long term, then the patients tend to respond. But the BTK inhibitor itself is not killing the, the, the cells directly. So other companies, you've seen this. At lower dose levels, they'll see inhibition of phospho-BTK. And it may take two or three or even four dose levels above that until they start seeing responses. Particularly in these relapsed refractory patients, these deep failure patients, why is that? Well, it's because BTK is not enough. Just inhibiting BTK in those patients is not enough. They have other pathways, other kinase pathways that are activated, additional mutations. So one of our competitors, yes, I think at dose level four, they had complete inhibition of BTK, but it was dose level seven or so before they actually showed responses. They had to continue increasing their dose levels to begin hitting those other kinases before they started seeing responses. So your skepticism is very, uh, it's founded in reality, and I agree with you. The difference here is we can already tell you we're not just hitting BTK. We're also inhibiting those other uh, kinases. So some of the other molecules were more potent against BTK and less potent against the other kinases. So they really had to dose escalate to inhibit the other ones. Uh, ours has much more of a a similar uh, activity profile in the picomolar to low nanomolar range against these, these key kinases that we're inhibiting. I mentioned FLIP3, BTK, PDGFR-alpha, ERK, SICK, all of these. Uh, we're inhibiting all of these at these dose levels. So that should give us more confidence as we show that we inhibit these multiple kinases that should translate into efficacy. Um, it's more difficult to predict that in B-cell malignancies, but based on the science, and the medical observations to date, we should be able to see responses over time. And we do know that in AML, if you have an active inhibitor in FLT3 that is known, it is sufficient to give responses. It is not sufficient over time to maintain responses. You need to hit other kinases and also the different mutant forms of FLT3. But if you have an active FLT3 inhibitor, it is confirmed that you can get responses in these patients. 
Perhaps Dr. Behar or Dr. Morongo want to add to that. Um, yeah, thank you, Bill, and thank you, Noreen, for the question. Bill captured very well the uh, the application and, and the coverage of these targets by PIA kinase um, uh, activity. The one thing I was going to add is, is perhaps just highlight again some of the differences between the indications when you apply this assay in CLL versus AML, um, and specifically in AML, which is the direction now that uh, we have ahead of us uh, later this year. Uh, inhibition of FLIP3 in this assay is a surrogate for uh, clinical activity. And we have actually seen this in uh, previous drug trials and PIA assays that have been published from idostorin and gilteridinib, back from the phase one of gilteridinib, um, where all that seemed to be required in the same patient was just about 85% or, or more uh, inhibition of FLIP3 activity. And those were the patients that then would respond. So, so as Dr. Rice said, it, it is sufficient for a response that FLIT3 inhibition. And that is in contrast then to BTK in CLL, where BTK is necessary but not entirely sufficient. You need to hit these other kinases, which coincidentally we do. Um, and, and, and I know we also have one of the myeloid disease experts on the call, uh, Dr. Behar. So uh, I will, you know, I'll, I'll also pass it to him if he has any extra thoughts. I think the other important... The other important point to make is that uh, when we're doing these PIA assays, we're using a reporter cell line in the laboratory. The, the cell line doesn't mimic the tissue architecture and the supporting cells that are around it. So you're right. It is actually easier to inhibit those markers in these artificial cell line reporters than it is in the patient. But we also have the ability to take cells from the patient, whether they be normal peripheral blood mononuclear cells, and look to see if the activity of these pathways is inhibited by the level of drug that's in their plasma. So we, that's additional data that we're collecting on the study that uh, hopefully will give us a better insight about what these drugs are actually doing mechanistically in patients. And I agree with Dr. Morango's point about uh, AML, that AML seems to be more uh, straightforward in terms of its uh, susceptibility or its addiction to that activated oncogene. And when you inhibit uh, FLT3 activity, you see a rapid cell death, which is why we see more uh, rapid responses in, this, in that patient population. But as uh, Dr. Rice mentioned, that's not sufficient, that there are mechanisms of escape that either are either mutagenic or have to do with uh, gene re expression regulation that can quickly come into play. So you need to have a little broader activity against other potential salvage pathways in order to have a lasting result in that patient population. That's really helpful from all of you. Thank you so much. Um, I just have one more follow-up question. Um, uh, you know, you mentioned that there's a one patient from dose level one that was uh, that's reportedly been moved up to the third dose level. Um, you know, I guess for you know for my own sake, um, how would you count this patient now as part of only the first cohort, or would you count this patient as part of both? You know, the first and third, and perhaps uh, can you talk about the rationale for moving him him or her up to the third dose? Thank you. Uh, the answer is yes, they would be considered part of one and part of three. Um, so I'm going to ask Dr. Uh, Behar to address why you would want to move them up to the higher dose levels. Sure. So getting back to the same point that Dr. Rice was making with your prior question, we think that it's important to hit not just BTK, but the other enzymes that are potentially compensatory for loss of BTK activity. And we know that we're going to have different sensitivities of these different enzymes to different levels of the drug. So a patient that's on a dose of 150 milligrams twice a day, for example, where we show inhibition of BTK, 
may need higher doses in order to achieve inhibition of, of other compensatory pathways. So if the drug is deemed safe uh, at that higher dose level, I think we improve the likelihood that a patient might have a beneficial outcome if we're able to dose escalate them to that level. So the motivation to do that is to help increase their chances of having a good outcome. It does also give us an opportunity to learn more about uh, PK and, and PD activity in that patient. And ultimately, uh, uh, you know, this is something that the patient also uh, is interested in doing uh, in, in the hopes of achieving a, a better response. So I think the, uh, a good example of that is uh, one of our competitor companies that got purchased by another large company this past year. Uh, they, they moved up patients from the lower dose levels up to, I believe, 65 milligrams, and the 75 milligram patients down to 65. Uh, so they selected a dose level at which they felt was, was efficacious and non, uh, non-toxic. And at that point, I believe, not, I may be not fully correct, but I do believe that is the only dose level at which they, uh, they demonstrated PRs, the responses in the uh, B-cell malignancy patients. So again, even if they're on d- lower dose levels, doing well, hitting certain kinases, move them up to those higher dose levels because the burden is upon us to make sure that we're giving these, chance, these patients the best chance to respond and to do so safely. And you need to give them as much drug as you can as long as it's safe and well tolerated. I'll end it there. Thank you. Um, thank you for the color. That's all for me. Thank you. Our next question comes from Matthew Cross with Jones Trading. Your line is now open. Hey, guys. Good to hear from you and, and appreciate you uh, addressing uh, some of the key questions out there about uh, EHA and the, the CG806 AML program with this call. Um, just a, a few questions from me. I guess, uh, first of all, being I, I'm glad that you, you know, we're, we're very clear here about kind of the expectations for, for EHA and ASH. Um, and just wanting to drill in a little bit about, um, re- related to that, a comment you made in, in your introductory remarks about kind of a, an expectation of a reduction in blood draws um, as a result of the COVID situation. Um, so I was curious to get kind of a little bit more insight into um, how th- that reduction in blood draws that may have already have, have started and, and going forward may impact the, the PK evaluations um, at, at EHA and at ASH. Um, given that you've stressed that particularly at EHA, uh, PK, PK, PD, and safety will kind of be the most important things to look at, um, just how that may impact the, the data flow for that for those events. All right. Thanks, Mike. Um, this is Bill again. So what we wanted to make certain is that we're collecting all of the blood samples that really tell us the picture of what's going on. good example is we've shown previously that by day eight, all the patients achieve steady state. So we would make, want to make certain that we get all the dose, uh, all the blood samples throughout day one, uh, the beginning of day two, and then day eight, uh, so that we understand the, uh, the initial pharmacokinetics on day one as well as then hitting the steady state. We then have been collecting at day eight, 15, 22, and then at the end of the, the cycle, cycle two, day one, which is, think of it as day 29. Um, so that gives us all of the steady states. But what we've decided is, well, we can miss maybe a couple of those in between. For instance, day 15, we can live without that, or even day 22 if we had to. So we're trying to minimize the burden on the patients and them coming back into the site. We're trying to make it so that, if possible, we can go out and have someone draw the blood remotely, or they can go to uh, other sites to have them drawn if they can't get into a clinical trial. But we're, we're, we're certain that we can have uh, an understanding of the steady-state pharmacokinetics of these patients, which is what we really want to know. 
It's that minimum dose, minimum exposure level that's critical to achieve and maintain to, to continue pressure on these, on these kinases in the patients. So those are the main points. Uh, we're still collecting the, uh, the samples for the PBMCs uh, on day one. We're going to actually uh, try to uh, collect those at also at later times so we can get a better read on what's going on in the fossil BTK and the PBMCs. Uh, so we, may, uh, we believe we're going to be able to provide uh, all the needed data uh, to correlate PK-PD relationships. Did that adequately answer your question? Yes, it did. Uh, thanks, Bill. That's great insight. Um, and, and, and glad to, it sounds logical to me as far as the handling of it prior to these, these upcoming readouts. Um, I guess I had kind of a two-part question then as a follow-up on, on AML and, and that program beginning. I know we're early days and this is still a discussion with the FDA, but just trying to get a little bit of, of um, more color around your, your expectations or, of what you're putting forward to the agency. Um, I guess uh, kind of two parts, like I said here. Um, one, wondering if you're going to intend to focus on, on patients or, or from an inclusion standpoint or maybe just from a stratification standpoint, um, enrolling patients based on FLT3 mutation, particular FLT3 mutations therein. I know you've shown evidence across, across the board within FLT3. Um, but you know, is, there, is there an intent to, to focus on AML patients broadly in the dose escalation portion or, or to focus on these split three mutants, um, whichever forms those may be? Um, and then the second part was, you know, for AML in particular, you, you've been very prudent, I think, to, to not begin testing in patients uh, until you have a dose you would expect to be to some degree efficacious. Um, but because of that, I'm sure you're, you're also eager to begin testing uh, in combination with venetoclax, where I know you've shown preclinical synergies, maybe other agents. Um, so just curious what you hope to, to kind of see from the CG806 monotherapy and in initial dose, dose escalation uh, prior to moving it to, into combination testing to really drive it at best outcomes uh, as we're kind of, you know, beginning to speculate about what we may see from, from the initial dose escalation. All right. Let's see if I can get through all of those. Uh, Happy to repeat okay. anything if I need to. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. Uh, so for the first part, uh, you want to know what types of AML patients we want to bring on this trial. So in effect, we are mutation agnostic. So we're not going to differentiate among the patients based on the genetic uh, background of the patients. We effectively want to have all comers. Having said that, we'd love to be able to get some FLT3 ITD patients on early uh, because those likely would be by far the most responsive very quickly. So that's something that we would hope to get on at the, uh, the early uh, dose levels or early cohorts among the first three patients we would try. Uh, but we're also eager to show that this drug uh, should be active against those patients as well as patients uh, that have wild-type FLT3, uh, various other mutations in FLT3, patients who have P53 mutations, RAS mutations, all of these types of patients. In particular, ones that are now resistant to other FLT3 inhibitors, we'd like to get those on. Now, it may be that we try to push some of those to the higher dose levels where we think maybe it will be more effective, but we just have to see how effective it is at the, uh, the entry dose level here. Um, but yes, to answer your question, we want to put value on the molecule as soon as we can, get it into what we believe are some of the most sensitive patients, but we are going to go after all these patient populations within that study. Uh, in terms of, uh, we've spoken that we want to test this drug in patients with AML, with MDS, single agent, and in combination. In order to try to get this study going uh, as quickly as we can, we're going to focus immediately on AML patients and single agent. Uh, once we get that lined up, then we would likely come back 
and expand to MDS patients because we believe our drug can be active there. And then also to then begin also the, uh, the combination studies. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna ask Dr. Behar to, to address those and give some of his thoughts on that because he's also the expert on MDS. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Uh, as usual, you've already answered the question and leave me to follow up. So he's exactly right. It, uh, uh, we do have an, an intent to look at the activity of CG806 and myeloid malignancies beyond AML and MDS in particular, given the, the uh, relationship of its biology to AML in general. And in the short term, we want to get the AML study up and running, do the dose escalation, understand how this drug is performing in that patient population, and then go and expand to other uh, indications, including MDS, and consider combinations with drugs like venetoclax, for example, where we have strong preclinical data that we shared before. I, I, I think it certainly is a, a population that, that has need. And uh, as far as tyrosine kinase inhibition in MDS goes, this would be a novel uh, use. This is not something that is currently considered part of the standard of care. So really expand the treatment options for that patient population as well. Perhaps you can talk about the uh uh, the t uh, titration of venetoclax uh, into AML patients versus uh, CLL patients and why we would like to go into AML patients first for the combo. Right. Unlike in CLL, where venetoclax has uh, very potent single-agent activity uh, and can become a little bit more uh, difficult to combine with other active agents due to the risk of uh, tumor lysis syndrome and things of that nature, you have to be a little bit more cautious in that patient population. In AML, venetoclax has very modest or marginal single-agent activity. It really has only shown significant benefit when combined with other agents like hypomethylating agents. And in that patient population, we don't see the same risks. It tends to be much safer and easier to, to dose in combination, uh, especially if you're combining it with a drug that doesn't have overlapping toxicities. So as you know, venetoclax has the propensity to lower blood counts, particularly neutrophils, uh, so far, we have not seen any evidence of that with CG806 in our B-cell patient population. So we're hopeful that that kind of combination would allow us to very safely and quickly understand how to put those two drugs together in AML patients. Thank you. And then we could apply that to uh, what we've learned in AML patients to B-cell malignancies uh, for the combinations. I would also ask uh, Dr. Morongo if he has any uh, additional input in terms of the selection of patients for the AML trial. Um, yeah, thank you, Bill, and thank you, Mac, for the question. Um, uh, as, as, you, as you heard about at this point, uh, two or uh, about three months ago, we held a symposium around AML in New York City where we discussed a lot of the issues um, open in this relapsed refractory population, a lot of the activity that we've seen preclinically um, uh, from this drug, and, uh, and how we are thinking uh, about this drug, but also how some of the experts in the field are thinking about it. Um, and it, it's, it's exactly uh, discussions like that and feedback like that, which was in the open, that are also driving um, our positioning and our strategy. And so as um, Dr. Rice and Bihar mentioned, um, there are some sort of lower hanging fruit populations out there, sort of uh, un unaddressed sort of clinical uh, need uh, within FLIT3 patients that have received FLIT3 inhibitors before. Uh, they are relapsing, so resistance, intolerance. Uh, patients with very uh, problematic mutations, p53, RAS. So all of these should be able to be captured in this phase one study, uh, and then pragmatically could then lead to separate investigations. Um, as you know, the most traditional path for an agent like this is uh, typically a staged approach, 
right, a, a, a targeted agent in hematology. So you start as a monotherapy and relapse refractory disease, uh, disease subsets that could be resistant or intolerant to other therapies. These present all fast development paths to accelerated approval. Let's call that stage one. Um, and then following closely, not quite in parallel, but potentially a few steps behind, you can have stage two, which would be expansions towards combinations and then expansions towards the front line. And in many hematology indications, including CLL and AML, these two actually go hand in hand, right? Combination and then move towards the front line. And this type of path would apply both to CLL, B cell tumors, as well as AML. And, and that, is, that is something that uh, you're likely to see here. Thank you. Great. No, that, that's super helpful, and, and appreciate you guys all, all chiming in there with some input. I think it's, it's, it's very cogent to describe, you know, the, the, the differences that you may see with combining with the NOCLAX in these two different indications um, and the path forward and, and, and even kind of looking very much ahead maybe, but to, but to frontline usage. So um, really appreciate all the insight, and, and stay safe, guys. Thank you. You too. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. And our next question comes from Joe Pankinitz with H.C. Wainwright. Your line is now open. Hi guys, this is Pasquale from the line of Joe. So a few questions for me on the 253 trial. So basically, are you looking at specific associated genes in the plasma of these patients? I'm, I'm sorry, it was difficult. To, are we looking at specific genes in the patients? Is that what you're saying? Are you looking at specific MIC associated genes in the plasma of these patients? Uh, in the, I'm not sure I, I fully understand your, your question. So we are collecting um, PBMCs from these patients. We're measuring um, the expression levels of MYC as well as a variety of other uh, genes. So the gene expression yeah. by PR-based assays. Yes, we are doing that in these patients. We haven't reported out all the other genes that we're looking at, uh, primarily MYC because yeah. it, it does inhibit MYC. But yes, we are looking at a number of genes in the PBMC expression levels. And these genes are associated with MIC pathway, is that correct? Uh, some are, some are not, yes. So uh, some of these you expect yeah. might be altered uh, if you inhibit MIC, but there are also other genes that, that we're interested in, yes. Yeah. So my second question is, is there a specific MIC signature associated with the defined AML genetic entity? So basically, in other words, what would be the optimal 253 AML target population? Uh, actually, I think uh, MIC is known to be overexpressed in many different uh, uh, subgroups of, of AML patients. Uh, I think what we would look for, hopefully, is patients who are overexpressing MIC. So as we've looked in cell lines uh, that are overexpressing MIC, both in AML as well as other uh, heme malignancy and even in solid tumors, those that are overexpressing MIC tend to be more sensitive to the drug. You know, that's one of the reasons we've talked about possibly expanding out into other malignancies. Right now with COVID, it's difficult to expand. We're trying to maintain the AML trial, yeah. uh, but we may want to expand into Burkitt's lymphoma. That is one that is known to be driven by MIC. Uh, there are also other indications that are heavily MIC driven. So that's most likely where ultimately we might look to, uh, to, to focus in patients uh, to respond to this. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, Maybe so Dr. basically, yeah, oh, go, ahead. go ahead, go ahead. I didn't know if Dr. Behar wants to add anything to that on AML and MDS. 
I would just say that we're collecting the samples to be able to answer those questions. We haven't predefined a mixed signature that we're looking for in this patient population in order to decide who might be responsive, but we definitely want to capture that uh, at, in the patients that we do treat so that if there is such a signal, we'll be able to understand it and characterize it. Yeah, that's great. So another so one is, well, we don't know what's going to happen when you just knock down MYC. So all the other drugs that are in the past that have been designed to inhibit MYC have been quite toxic. So it's not known yet, at least clinically, what will happen if you can selectively knock down MYC and safely to do so. Uh, so we're looking, we're eager to find that out. Okay. Yeah, that's very helpful. Is there a way to select for patients with MYC overexpression? With what expression? I'm sorry. With MYC overexpression. I was wondering uh, if, you know, going forward, you're thinking at the way of selecting like biomarker-specific patients using MYC. So the, the best one to, to look at there is, is literally MYC expression itself. We're able to do that very quickly in the PBMCs. Uh, so one of those, as I said earlier, was Burkitt's lymphoma. Now that we know this is a MYC inhibitor, we'd want to look at those uh, types of patients and hopefully select those. Uh, with AML, let us collect some data in patients. Let us see if the MYC inhibition correlates with with sensitivity and with uh, clinical activity over time as we get into the higher dose levels. I'd, I'd like to think that would be that's true, but I do not yet have data to support that. So we'll have to collect the data. Yeah, perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, and I'm showing no further questions in the queue at this time. I'd like to turn the call back to Dr. Rice for closing remarks. All right. Well, I want to thank everyone for joining us in this afternoon, and I particularly want to say thank you for all the insightful, thoughtful questions that came to us. Although we have much work ahead of us, we're gratified by the progress of our two clinical programs, both 253 and 806, uh, and that we've been able to recruit new patients and escalate the dosing in our clinical trials, even in these difficult times. Uh, well, I particularly want to thank our clinical team, our investigators, our patients for their help in this important work. Uh, we appreciate the support of our shareholders and the analysts that are on this call. Uh, we look forward to keeping you updated on our progress. We hope to see you at EHA, although it's going to be virtual. Um, we want to thank everyone say, and have a great evening and be safe. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes today's conference call. You may all disconnect and have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.